0: Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, we thank you that we come before you now uh, as the great God of heaven and earth, and the great God who uh, judges and saves, and the great God who, will, who has established your eternal kingdom through your Son. And uh, we, we say these things to remind ourselves of the, the, glor- the, the glorious and, and grand and great God that you are, for it is so easy for us in our day-to-day lives uh, to be caught up in thinking that you are small and insignificant, uh, and that your kingdom is small and insignificant. And we so thank you that as we come to this new series in Isaiah, we will be made to, to think and, and, and ponder and, and, and receive and trust uh, that you are the greatest, glorious, grandest uh, being in this entire world, uh, in history past, in history present, in eternity to come, and that you'll lift our eyes, you'll lift our hearts, you'll lift our lives, to live in such a way as to behold your grandeur. We pray that you prepare us now as we begin this new series to have hearts that are soft to receive your word, that minds will be sharp to be able to receive uh, the teaching of this great book. We pray too for the Sunday school kids downstairs as they go through Isaiah as well in Sunday school. We pray for their hearts to be soft to your word. We pray especially for the teachers to work really hard to make these big teachings clear, not to make them small, but to make them simple and clear for the children to be able to understand and for their lives to be able to be impacted and transformed. I pray the same for myself and for Steve as we preach through the series. Uh, We we take these big truths and we make it real and understandable and powerful in in changing our lives. But in spite of uh, how weak we might be in preaching your word, we know that your spirit is strong and powerful to change. And so we pray for your work in all of our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's a bit of a nerve-wracking thing to begin this new series. Uh, I look back at my folder called Isaiah in my Old Testament sermon preaching folder, and I realized that I tried to do an outline of preaching this book seven years ago in 2011. And uh, even back then, I realized that even though I had done a subject in Bible college on it, Uh, and had read through Isaiah prior to doing that breakdown, and having read through Isaiah in my quiet time last year, studying it in preparation for this year, and reading Isaiah again over the last month, I I still feel like I'm only barely grasping what it's trying to say. Uh, And I guess the good thing is, I only have to know a little bit more than you guys to be helpful, right? Now, I I, I think that having studied all this, I I do feel like I'm getting there, but it's still very, very daunting. Uh, It's a big, big book. Right, It's called the Romans, right, of the Old Testament. Uh, I'm not sure why Steve and I decided to do Romans in semester one this year and then Isaiah second half of the year, but that's what we're doing. Uh, it's the two epic books, right? It's kind of epic, like Revelation is epic. You know, we're a bit scared to read Revelation because it's so epic, and Isaiah is a bit like that. Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel, right, on top of uh, the, the four gospels in the New Testament. It's kind of the fifth gospel, the gospel in the Old Testament, as you open the pages and you read it, it's terrifically difficult to read and understand. Right? It's prophetic, visionary literature. It's this curious mixture of poetry, which I've discovered that Asians are not very good at reading, right, from doing Ecclesiastes with the YFAs last semester, as well as prose. It is confusing and it's complex. And it covers over a huge span of time right, over probably about 200 years of history, but then it hints at eternity that is to come, a future, right, Uh, into the time of Christ, into our time, and into the future. Uh, It's a long book, 66 chapters, right, second only to the Psalms, and Psalms really isn't one big book that has, you know, a flowing story, so in a way, it's the longest of its kind, right, 66 books. Now, 66 books uh, is the same number of books as the Bible has books, sorry, 66 chapters, so six, same as the 66 six books of the Bible, and it's led to some playful comparisons. Well, there's nothing in it, okay, because the numbers are man-made. But it's an interesting kind of comparison, uh, even though it's a playful thing, to see how Isaiah and what it teaches, in a way, covers the full span of what the 66 books of the Bible covers. It's, in a way, the Bible in microcosm, the Bible in a nutshell. A really big nut, uh, but in a nutshell. It is theologically rich, containing almost all the biggest themes of the entire Bible. But Isaiah, because Isaiah, first and foremost, is about the greatest and grandest of all things. It's about God. And it's about God's eternal plans that He reveals and that He achieves. It's about the Bible and about God. Now, as big and grand as the message of Isaiah is, though, it comes in the context of Of smallness and insignificance. In the context of smallness and insignificance, Isaiah is set in a situation where God's people aren't anywhere close to being grand or being great. The book is grand in what it says, but the context, the message comes to a people who are not grand and who are not great. People who are small and seemingly insignificant. Now, I think it's a setting that resonates with our setting, doesn't it? Uh, how great and grand is it, really, to be a follower of Jesus Christ today? You think about it, how great and how grand is it for us as Christians. For in society today, we are increasingly sidelined, right? more and more pushed to the periphery, to the edges, by liberal forces. Uh, we are not a force to be reckoned with. Are being seen to be no longer relevant in this modern and postmodern world. We are one religion out of a smorgasbord of many religions, all making fairy tale claims, right? So people say. We live in a world where all truth is true, which means that there is no truth that is true. Once we were tolerated as a nuisance, but there is a great growing and greater intolerance. And it's something that I'm sure you have felt some way, shape or form. I am an avid reader of forums, and whenever Christianity or religions come up, we are increasingly mocked all right, without any shame. People used to be respectful, but no longer. But it's not just the external realities that makes us think that Christianity is no longer great and grand. It's not just the world out there. Sometimes it's within our own personal lives we can feel as if Christianity is not that great or not that grand. When we look at our lives, how much of an impact does being a Christian really have in my life? What power do I really experience right, on a day-to-day level? Where is my God when my family and friends reject me sharing with them the gospel? How powerful is the Spirit The Holy Spirit, if my life is wrecked by sin and guilt and unholiness, when it's so weak and out of control, the world out there and the world within can make us think that God and the gospel, that God and his son Jesus Christ is weak and insignificant. We question whether God is as great and as grand as God's word makes him out to be. It reminds me of Apostle Paul, right? The Corinthians would mock Paul. Your word's so strong, but when you come in person, you seem so weak, right? Your, your bark is, is worse than your bite. Is God like that, right? His word's strong, but is he powerful at all? Now, history is so long and so complex. Can God really contain and control it all? No, history is so big. The world and all its people and its problems are so diverse, and so deep, can God really solve it all? The nations and powers that rule and control this world, kingdoms, governments, spiritual forces, religions, philosophies, and ideologies, can there really be one God, one true God, that stands above it all? Can there be only really one God alone that is truly God? Have you ever asked that question before? So many claims, so many powers, so long a history, so many nations. Can there really be the one true God overall? Now, the book of Isaiah was written to answer these questions. It's written to a small, weak, and seemingly insignificant group of people to give God's great answer to these questions. It's written to us today, feeling the same weakness, feeling the same smallness. Having these same questions. And Isaiah's answer is simply yes. Yes, God can and God does rule. God can and God does save, and God alone will stand victorious over every power and over every person. Now, this first sermon of the series is an overview sermon, right? As we've said before, to give us a big picture, understanding of Isaiah. It's kind of an appetizer, right, to the feast that will follow. It's also a bit of like an overture, if you're an orchestra person, to give you a, a, a sense of what's to come. Um, it's going to be a part history, so for those of you who hated history in school, which is me, uh, don't tune out, okay? There's about five, ten minutes of history that I need to go through, and we will need to go through a bit of history every week. Like I say, these words come in a context, and unless you understand that context, you're not going to really fully appreciate the message, so it's going to be a bit of history, there's going to be a bit of theology, right, major teachings and doctrines. There's going to be biblical theology pointing forward to the story to come, especially the gospel. And in the end, hopefully, there'll be something that we can be challenged with and apply in the week that is to come. But let's begin with the first verse and a half, right, which I'm really just going to expound the first verse today uh, of Isaiah. All right? Isaiah 1, open your Bibles, verse 1 to 2. Uh, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. <clears throat> now, let's start with the context. All right? the, the kings... Uh, in this time of Isaiah, as he wrote this vision, is Uzziah, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Okay, so their reigns, i just put up on the screen, uh, is that period there. Okay, so Isaiah probably started his ministry at the end of Uzziah's reign, around the 740 B.C. mark, and he finished probably in the very early 6th century, uh, which is around probably 690, around there, okay, about 40, 50 years old. He was pretty old. Uh, probably by the time he saw the events that he writes about uh, in this book. Now, what's going on here? Right? Who are these people and why does it matter? Right? These are people, obviously, 2,750 plus years ago. Right? Long time ago. Uh, but what's going on here and why is it important? Now, this is a bit of a pictorial view of history okay, from the Bible. Uh, you can't see it. It's not your eyes. I'll put it up there for a reason, just to show you that this is real history. There's a timeline, okay? Creations on the far left. I'm going to zoom in, okay? So that will I'll zoom on the left part of this picture so maybe we can see a bit of it. Okay? If you can't, don't worry. I'll, I'll talk about it, okay? Now, we want to rewind back all the way to the beginning, right? The Bible. So if you... Is it helpful to have that on the screen? If not, rough, roughly, it's just one straight line at this point. So not that much to see, okay? Creation is there, okay? And I'll point out some other things along the way. So let's blank that so you're not staring at that, okay? So, creation on the far left. The Bible begins uh, with the story of creation, of how God created this world. We all know it, I'm sure, very familiar. He created human beings to be his children. Uh, And the first human beings, Adam and Eve, turned their backs on God. And to show that it wasn't a fluke, just a once-off, every single human being that appears on the scene after Adam and Eve follow in the footsteps uh, of Adam and Eve. And not only that, it gets worse. Right? Many of you know the story of Noah, where the, the world was so corrupt and so wicked that God had to bring forth his first sort of major, major judgment after the fall. Now, the fall in itself was a, probably the most major of the judgments. Right? He, he brought curse uh, onto humanity, the curse of, of death and separation from God. But God, even though he cursed Adam and Eve and all humanity in Genesis 3, and he judged the world with a flood in Genesis 6 and 9. God's heart is a heart of love and mercy and grace. He did not want judgment to be the last word. He was not done with the children that he had made. And so along comes Genesis 12, where God appears to a man called Abram. And we know him as Abraham, and he's renamed Abraham. And God gave him these amazing promises in Genesis 12. You really should memorize it. Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. There he blesses Abraham and promises a blessing through Abraham, through his descendants, to the rest of the world, a blessing which will reverse the curses of the fall of sin and judgment. Now from Abraham, the story continues, right? So that's in this picture here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. For Jacob is renamed Israel. The 12 tribes come. And through going down to Egypt during a famine and coming back up to Canaan, they become a great nation, and they dwell in this land called Canaan, which we know as Israel today. And there they grew to become a great nation and a great kingdom, especially under the rule of the first kings. Uh, Not Saul, he was a bit of a failure, but uh, David and Solomon, okay, as we get to this part here, Israel has become a pretty great nation. And it's at this period of time where God made a promise to David to add on to the promises to Abraham that David's throne would be great, everlastingly great, right? That Israel was the nation uh, that, that had this great God whom he result, revealed himself as Yahweh, the creator of the entire heavens and the earth. Israel made the claim that this one God over them is actually the one sovereign God over all people, over all places, and over all powers. Israel lived with the conviction that Yahweh was the true king and looked forward to the day when all the earth would know it, when the glory of God will fill all of the earth. That was the claim that this small nation Israel made. The problem is that by the time we get to Jotham, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So this is the next part of the timeline. So that's, uh, we get to this point here, and we are now here, right? Isaiah, 750 to about 6-something BC, okay? We get to this point here where things look messy. <clears throat> so let me explain, okay? So you see there's Israel up there, and there's Judah down here. We get to a time in history where because of consistent and constant rebellion against God, and sinful and wicked choices that Israel made, there was civil war, right? Israel was in tatters. You had the North Kingdom separated off from the two South Kingdoms. So the North Kingdom is called Israel, and the South Kingdom is called Judah. It's a bit confusing, because Israel as an entire nation is called Israel, but then also the North Kingdom is called Israel, and the South Kingdom is called Judah. Now, depending on the context, the Bible is pretty clear whether they are talking about national Israel as a whole of God's people or Northern Kingdom, okay? And I'll talk about that as we go through, because it gets a bit confusing at times, but context makes it clear, okay? Now, the North was the more consistently faithless of the two kingdoms. Uh, They're the one that split off, and they were pretty much the the faithless nation. Judah went well for some time, but they too had the same human problem of rebelling against God and living in sin. Now, during the time uh, of this period in which you're looking at, I'm going to Put that away again. There's trouble in the region. There's always trouble in that region, isn't it? Even today. Um, because Judah, this tiny nation, occupies a, a small but strategic place in world history. It was the center of the known world at that time. So, just a map coming up, just to orientate you. Okay, so our history lesson continues. So, Judah is this tiny little nation here. Okay? And then Israel fills up this area here. And then we've got other cities around, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, okay? You know, if you know your, your map on the world, I just watched a video yesterday on YouTube where some random person went to a map and showed people where is this in the world and people had no idea, right? Our geography is so bad these days. My kids hate geography for some reason, but it's good to know a bit of geography, right? Okay, so this part of the world, um, Egypt in the 8th century and 7th century BC had become sidelined as a superpower, Right in the time of, uh, of Moses, obviously Egypt was the superpower of the time. If you do your ancient history, you'll know that. But as we get to the 7th and 8th century, uh, they have, they've come and gone as a superpower. And Assyria is on the rise. So you all might know the Assyrian Empire. It's now taking out this whole area here. Okay? Assyria is on the rise, and there's a setting of this. But Isaiah also talks about a time where Babylon is also starting to make its moves. And eventually the Babylonian Empire will come across and sweep. And then after the Babylonian Empire, what's the next empire? Anyone know your history? The Persian Median Empire, right? We'll come up of that. And then you get the Greek Empire, which is where we get the time of Jesus. Okay, we're talking about world history here. The reason I want to make all these statements is because we're not talking about fairy tales. We're not talking about legends. We're talking about real world 2,700 years ago. Now in this time, Israel, Judah are caught in a crossfire between battling Empires, as you can see. Now, from a geopolitical perspective, uh, they seem to always just be pawns caught up in the battle of kings. This is the original Game of Thrones. Don't watch the TV series, for goodness sakes. Don't watch it. Read the book, it's okay, right? The book is PG. The, the TV show is terrible, right? But Game of Thrones, Judah is a pawn, okay? From a theological perspective, their rebellion against God. And their sinful living has brought on them God's judgment. From a geopolitical perspective, they're just caught in this Game of Thrones. But from a theological perspective, they are under the judgment hand of God. They seem to be caught up in forces beyond their own control, yet their plight is completely self-inflicted from a sin perspective. In In either case, it calls God's power and sovereignty into question. Is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is the God of Israel and Judah really God overall? Why is he letting all these things happen? Why can't he control his people? Why do they have to be so rebellious and sinful all the time? Why can't God fulfill his promises to bring blessings to the world through his people? In the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, Israel's claim of the one true God over everyone seems positively laughable, and the nations did laugh at Israel and Judah for their claims. Now, it's in this context that the vision comes to Isaiah, and when I point to B, the content, right, the vision comes, the content of this vision concerns Judah and Jerusalem. It says that clearly, right, in verse 1, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. You see, this entire 66 chapters, this big book, has a very sharp focus, okay, it concerns the the, the the nation Judah and her capital city Jerusalem. Now, the first five chapters of this vision, Isaiah one of five, lays out for us the dire state of Judah and lays bare the reasons why they are in the crisis that they're in. Is the their plight is an active act of God's judgment. Nothing that's happening is happening by chance. Uh, It is God's very active and controlled response to the sins of His people. And it's only going to get worse. As we read on in Isaiah, it's only going to get worse as God's full weight of judgment falls, resulting, as we will see later on, in the destruction of Judah and their exile into a foreign land. That's at the end of Book 1, which is uh, Chapter 39. Now, in very true prophetic form, the words of Isaiah cut to the absolute bone, right? Empty worship, and sickening sinfulness is the hallmark of the people. Have a look at verse four, chapter one, verse four. Our sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. that's right, kind of a summary, really, of what the first five chapters is about. But this laying out of Israel's sins merely serves as an introduction to the main message, right? The rest of the vision. The rest of Isaiah 6 to 66 expands to a far greater scope uh, that, that that concerns the great nations, right? Assyria initially, right, in chapter six to thirty-seven. And then Babylonian comes onto the scene from chapter thirty-eight onwards. And all the way through, as you're flipping through the first few chapters you'll see that other nations are vying for attention as well, right? Egypt, uh, Philistia, Moab, Edom. There's all these great nations and all these other medium-sized nations. And you kind of wonder, how can this vision be about Judah and Jerusalem? It seems to be concerned with all these other nations. How can it be about Judah and Jerusalem? I think it's in this that lies the majesty of the book, right? In this lies the majesty of the book. You see, this vision is about God. It's a movie about God, really. This vision, uh, and, and these giants of nations, they seem to be big players in this movie, but we 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 get to see them to be simply extras on the set. Quelle faire, I think is the way we describe it, right? They seem big. Like maybe in the movie posters, you know, they are like big, but they are like faded into the background, because they're just extras. For the main attraction of the show even though maybe the airtime isn't as much, is actually lowly Judah. The other nations, they take their cue in relation to Judah. Their story, their judgment, and their hope are tied up with how they respond to Judah, and more importantly, how they respond to the God of Israel. The city, Jerusalem, takes center stage. Now, it might not seem that way at the start of the show. For they are a sinful, hopeless, broken city. But by the end, Jerusalem, or as we'll come to hear more and more, Zion, Jerusalem's other name, will be the only city that stands, not just in this world, but in the world to come. Zion, the city of God. But even more to the absolute point, like a magnifying glass that you direct the sun's rays onto a point or like a spotlight that, that, that trains onto the star of the show, the absolute focus point is an individual in this story that stands far and above any other king or power or nation that raises up during these years. Now, we meet this individual in this book in three kind of distinct forms, so distinct and different they seem to be that it seems like Maybe there isn't one individual, maybe there are three different peoples, three different anointeds Let's go through them, right? Firstly, we meet an individual who is king, to the point of being God himself. So I'll bring up the passage here, turn with me Isaiah 9. This first individual we meet is king, almost to the point of being God himself, perhaps God himself, right? Isaiah 9, very famous Christmas passage, right? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Rising above all these earthly kings and superpowers is this eternal and almighty ruler who will bring in justice. How do you bring in justice? By bringing judgment on evil and by restoring righteousness and peace. He's the Messiah. Endowed with the Spirit of God, he's his final and perfect king. That's individual one we meet. Secondly, we meet an individual who is servant. And it's hard to imagine this servant being the same person as the king. Let's read on, okay? Isaiah 42, 40, verse 1 and 3. He is humble and gentle, right? 42, verse 1 and 3. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Right? Very gentle, very humble. But even more shockingly, he suffers. He is opposed, he is persecuted, and he is killed. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Isaiah 53, verse 7. This servant, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Oppressed, stricken, judged. But then we realize he suffers in order to bring forgiveness. Not because he's sinful, but because others are, and he's come to right all wrongs. Isaiah 53 verse 10, next verse. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he, the suffering servant, shall bear their inequities. So we've got the king, God himself almost. We have this suffering servant, humble and gentle, suffers. But saves. And then finally, we meet this third individual, the conqueror. Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3. A couple pages over, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and a day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the all of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This conqueror achieves the double task of vengeance and salvation, for you cannot have one or the, without the other. When, right, when you're under oppression, when you're under an enemy ruling over you, the enemy has to be vanquished for the captives to be set free, and this is what this conqueror comes to achieve. And so we see this spotlight of this vision shines brightest on this individual who at first seems to be three individuals, but as you read them, They're all doing the same thing, bringing justice, right? Bringing justice by judgment and salvation. That's who we see. And this anointed, this Messiah, is a single person. Isaiah hints at it, hints at it, but what is merely a whisper in Isaiah is shouted out loud in the New Testament, isn't it? What is but a whisper in Isaiah that they might be the same person is shouted out loud in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the one that Isaiah spoke of, right? Fulfilled in full. He is the anointed king, the suffering servant, and the conqueror of God. Jesus Christ is God's answer to the situation that was faced by Judah in her smallness, insignificance, weakness. Sinfulness and judgment. And Jesus continues to be the answer today to display His power over every principality and power in the human realm as well as the spiritual realm. Jesus came as the servant who indeed bore the sins of the people as He died on the cross. He is the one who, in whom we trust. For he will come back to conquer and bring every rebel power under his feet. And he will usher in his eternal kingdom. When Jesus came, that promise was fulfilled. But as we live in this period of uh, overlap before his kingdom finally comes, we experience that same weakness, that same smallness, that same insignificance, but with a guarantee of what Jesus has already achieved. And what he will bring to pass when he returns. As we see, for good reason, Isaiah is called the fifth gospel. Isaiah is preaching to us the gospel. And we have the privilege, being New Testament people, of being able to see what Isaiah was talking about in a way he didn't. And that is the joy that we have as we go through the series over the next three or four months. And so we see that Isaiah, in its content, concerns Judah and Jerusalem. It concerns Judah and Jerusalem, and especially this anointed one, this king, servant, and conqueror. And that is the reason why this message and its audience is for the entire world. For in verse 2, Isaiah has no shame in boldly proclaiming, Hear, listen, O heavens and the earth, for Lord God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he speaks. You see, from this small, geopolitically insignificant nation, Judah, from this sinfully accursed city, Jerusalem, will come the king over all. And so this message is for all, even though this nation is small now. You've got to hear this, right? This vision, this revelation from God, this news involves you, right? You and me. It involves our neighbors. Living around here, St. Lucia, in whatever suburb you live in, it involves your classmates and your colleagues, your family. It involves every stranger that you've never met. This message is for every single person. This message determines everyone's eternal destiny. You see, it's interesting, isn't it? When Israel begins with God calling out to the heavens and the earth to hear And we know how Isaiah ends. We heard it read out to us before, isn't it? Isaiah 65, verse 17 to 18. Go back there again. We did a reading before on it. It ends with the new heavens and a new earth, right? Isaiah 65, verse 17 to 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Just as God created this world, so will he also create the new world that is to come. Right, This world, human history, human geography, human politics, religions, philosophies, and ideologies of this world will come to an end point. And there will be no more. They were so pale into insignificant what's going on in our past however many thousand years of history, it will so come into insignificance that we, it will be like we won't even remember it. That's how insignificant this world will be in light of this new heavens and a new earth. And so the entire world is called to listen to God's message because God is not only the God of this world, but the God, the only God of the world that is to come. is the only God of the world that is to come. Now, we live in a world where this message is buried under all this white noise. We're kind of like Spider-Man with our spidey sense of hearing. And you're hearing all these people crying out, right, for help or, 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 or give advice uh, and telling us what life is about, what to live for, what is important, what we can and can't do without. Voices calling out, telling us who we're supposed to be in this world, in this life. And this vision of Isaiah, this word from God, is the one voice, the only voice that matters, that we must tune into. This is the vision we must see, that we must receive and believe in. And so as we launch into this new sermon series, the main application from today is to prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for the months that is to come. Get ready for big things. Right? Get ready for big things. I want you to expect a lot from God's Word. And hopefully you can pray for Steve and I to be able to deliver a message that will do some justice to the power of God's Word that is in Isaiah. To be able to do that, I need you to get ready to work hard. It's a great and grand book. yes. It is complicated and complex. It is confusing at times. But the best things in life are things you have to work for, right? So work hard. And you know you work hard to get your, 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 your marks in school, to get that project work done for your dodgy boss. Okay, be a good boss. Work hard for the biggest boss of them all. Read Isaiah, right? Watch those videos from the Bible Project, then read the 66 chapters this week. That is 11 chapters per day, right? If you want to. And then after that, when you're not understanding what's going on again, read, watch that video again and then read it again the second time next week. And then do that every week. I know Ken will probably do it. Where's Ken? Right? We're well, doing our John Sermon series. He read John. I don't know. Everything went through it, the whole book every week. Is that right, Ken? Did I misrepresent you? He's right. Yeah, exactly. If Ken can do it, you can too. Okay. You can try. Okay. I, I loved it when he told me that, right? You want to work hard at this book. I've read this book I don't know, maybe at least 10, 12 times, and I'm still having to work hard. And I promise you that I'll be reading it over and over again so that I can develop a message that does just justice to the power and the grandeur of this book. Let me encourage you to get ready to work hard. But get ready to be challenged and to be confronted. Firstly, by this wave of judgment that will hit. I'm going to say to you: the first, I don't know, two, three weeks, is going to be heavy on judgment. You thought Steve was confronting when he did Romans 1 and 2, right? And we're going to try and, and, and match that. It's the same message, really. Isaiah begins the same way Romans does, to bear before all a mirror that shows what we're really like, even as people of God. And then it's going to show a mirror to what the world's like. And if you're not a Christian here, coming in this next few weeks, you will hear something very confronting. It might sound intolerant, but can I encourage you to see that we're not trying to be intolerant. We're trying to see what God thinks about us. And you can ask yourself whether it's true, whether the human condition is really like that. So we're going to see in the first few weeks. Prepare for that judgment, but also prepare for the glorious hope. Right, just keep shining out. Have you guys ever had the experience of a, a dreary day where everything's really gray and black, and then suddenly the sun shines out from one of the clouds, just peeks out, and it's bam! It's a bit like that in, in Isaiah. And where you least expect to find it, hope! Where you least expect to find it, salvation! And we're going to keep seeing that as we go through this book. It's awesome. Prepare yourselves to see Jesus even more clearly. In the, the day, Isaiah is pointing us to Christ. And we're going to want to see Jesus even more clearly, for God's message is centered on His Son, the king, the servant, the conqueror, the one who fulfills every promise of Isaiah in a way that even Isaiah didn't expect. In so doing, as it transforms our minds and transforms our hearts, I pray this series will grow our faith, for that is the first and the most important response that we need to come to this book, to God's word, to put our trust in Jesus. And maybe that will be for the first time if you're here as an unbeliever searching, I have confidence that God's message is so powerful that you may put your faith in Jesus for the first time in the coming months. For others of us, it may build our faith. Maybe it has shrunk. Maybe it has become weak. Maybe it's become small and insignificant from the world and from the internal struggles that we face. I pray that this series will grow our faith, that it will grow our savoring of the glory and the grandeur of God in order that we may be led to a greater worship of God in our day-to-day lives as we live for Him. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who has promised a new heavens and new earth through your son, through his life, death, and resurrection, as you install him as king, eternal king, on the eternal throne, as he has come as a suffering servant to bring justice by judging sin and by restoring justice and peace, as he comes to conquer, to bring every rebel power under his feet, and to rule without peer, without objection, without any oppression in the world that is to come. We pray that Isaiah, this vision, will grow bigger and bigger in our minds and hearts as we go through this book, as we work hard to understand it in our minds, as we soften our hearts to receive your word, as our hearts grow in faith in the Lord Jesus, as we're convicted to see how glorious and grand he is, as our lives are transformed in light of that. We pray that you'll do these big, big things in our lives in the coming months. We thank you that you are a great God, and we pray that uh, you will do this work, uh, knowing that, it is, that you are our only source of joy and peace, that you're our only hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name.